Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I can promise you that nothing I say today will be lifted from a speech by either Michelle Obama or Melania Trump. Yeah, can, can we actually <laughs> have an agreement that we're not going to talk at, like, no mention of the Republican convention yeah. on this I, podcast I, I think today? It's, it was a pretty forgettable moment. Yeah, I, I think it was forgettable except for the parts that were so bizarre that you couldn't quite believe they were happening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who hasn't accidentally plagiarized the current first lady in the speech? I do it mm-hmm. at least weekly. <laughs> it <laughs> could happen too. Yes, because <laughs> she's so quotable. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the It Was 29 Pages All Along edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast. We're in a packed studio today, you guys. We have never had this many people in our tiny studio perched above, we're not really above DuPont's. And sweltering. And sweltering. It always still feels like a hothouse. That has not changed. Uh, but in addition it's to so our, exciting. It's because we're so hot. It's because we're so hot. <laughs> we're so we're hot. really steaming it up in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I'm here. We're making our special guest reconsider why he decided to join us. So I guess uh, that was Ryan Evans. You just heard the CEO, founder, and editor in chief of War on the Rocks. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be on my one of my favorite podcasts. Well, thanks, man. We love your podcast too, and your site. And you guys have had a great year, and we're like really psyched that you're. We've been drinking from your glasses for a while. Oh, it's a little early this morning for Scott. Yeah. I know. We finally have Ryan on the podcast, and you don't even have scotch. It's... Well, I got like, some Baileys in my coffee. If Ryan <laughs> wants uh, scotch at 10.42 in the morning, uh, I can do that. But they were going to listen to this whenever, so couldn't we have just pretended it was afternoon yeah. at least, and then I could drink without shame, <laughs> <laughs> being on a record drinking in the morning? We That's definitely right. make for a better podcast. Yeah, let's turn the podcast <laughs> over again with this drink. Uh, I'm also joined here by my friends Ben Wittes. Hello, Ben. Yo. Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hello, Tamara. Hello, Shane. And Susan Hennessy. Hi, Shane. Hi, Susan. Um, a lot to get to on the podcast this week. Uh, a terrorist in Nice kills more than 80 people celebrating Bastille Day. Turkey's president hangs on to power following an attempted coup and the Congress releases 29 previously classified pages from an inquiry into the 9-11 attacks. You thought there were 28. Yeah, and every... It's the new, greatest lie of all, is that there were 29 pages. The, the, the 9-11 truthers have, have now something to work with. Yes. Because there's an extra page. <laughs> there's an extra page pages. all along. That we didn't, and what do we call it now? We're going to get to that later when we have to decide what to call the, the 28 pages. Um, but let's start with the attack uh, uh, in France, obviously, and there's been another attack uh, just uh, now in Germany as well. We're getting reports of that. Um, but obviously this was a horrific uh, attack. Uh, a deranged man driving a truck down a crowded uh, promenade in Nice, Killed more than 80 people celebrating Bastille Day. Um, it, it kind of came in the midst, obviously, of this very chaotic news week already and sort of made me feel like, you know, stop the world, I want to get off. It's a little bit crazy. But what were some of you guys' initial takeaways about what, what we saw here? And it's, it's obviously it's echoing, you know, the Bataclan attacks, the 
bombings in Turkey. I mean, it's just, it's one in a series, but what about this stuck out to you? So look, I actually think it's sort of interesting that it comes in the midst of such a crazy week because it gives a little bit of a test case for how much the media coverage actually uh, affects sort of the the sort of the terror amplification effect, mm. right? I mean, there there was barely time to sort of digest you know, the, the images and kind of the horror of it before we were on to a coup in Turkey and, and now another attack in Germany. Um, you know, it, it's already been dropped from sort of the front page of most newspapers. Um, so, you know, it, it'll be sort of interesting to see um, at, at whether or not it, the narrative kind of, um, you know, of, of ISIS gaining ground and, and uh, you know, Losing territory, yeah, losing territory, losing territory and then, and then yeah. reaching out in the rest of the country, whether or not that becomes, um, whether this will be sort of an example of um, a really horrific attack that gives them very little kind of bounce in terms of occupying like the, the global consciousness mm-hmm. or sort mm-hmm. of our collective consciousness. Um, beyond that, though, it, it's hard to it's hard to have new commentary on this stuff. Well, I, you, oh, go ahead, go ahead, because I thought of something. But well, I I was gonna say I feel like um, I'm not sh- first of all I'm not sure that ISIS's primary objective is to dominate the media narrative. Mm-hmm. I I think that whether the media coverage is focused on ISIS attacks or self radicalization that you know results in attacks on soft targets or or not, um, what we do have in the media is a broader narrative of scary things happening in a lot of different places, creating an impression of a world in chaos. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that people are speculating about the impact of this ongoing set of attacks on our political environment or the political environment in Europe, I think it's the broader chaos and violence that is going to shape those political outcomes, number one. But number two... I, you know, and I know, Ben, you had Will McCants on uh, the Lawfare podcast uh, talking about whether ISIS is evolving in its tactics and whether the impact on shrinking, ter- you know, whether the impact of the assault on its territory in Iraq and Syria is, is having an impact on these external attacks. But I think what we see here is just how easy it is for ISIS to get credit and to get leverage through these, through these attacks, these are individuals. We still don't know the full story of their radicalization, but um, it's striking to me that ISIS, this wasn't apparently something that ISIS planned. It took them days afterwards to claim credit. Uh, but they can very easily take credit for this and anything like it, and whether they had anything to do with it in advance or not. And I think that that points to the 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 environment within which they and we are operating and the tremendous disadvantage that governments are at so I think in that, that environment. I think there's another uh, really important dimension of this attack, uh, and that's that it did not take place with a gun or with explosives. Yep. Um, and, you know, people, people think of terrorist attacks as being suicide bombing attacks, and, you know, that's actually a really recent phenomenon that that developed. And... Things, uh, you know, terrorists work by demonstration projects. And what we just had was a demonstration project that you actually don't need a suicide vest. You don't need a car bomb. All you need is a truck. You don't even need a firearm. 
all you need is a truck and a large crowd. Well, we and certainly I, this from attacks though in, in 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 Israel recently. Yeah, but 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 pretty small scale. Yeah, I mean, small the, to, scale, the total sure. total number of deaths in those attacks like is three, is, most, is yeah. three, four, five people well, get killed or hurt. But here you have a mass casualty event, uh, and somebody pulled it off with relatively little planning and relatively little expertise, and that is a very scary thing. He did have a gun, but he used it at the very end to shoot at police officers, but it wasn't a big part of the casualties. So you're right, right. in that it doesn't require that. Um, I guess what I worry about over the long term is how these kinds of attacks that strike people, either when they're just going around, li going about living their daily normal lives or celebrating, is going to affect our long-term public behavior over the long term mm -hmm. and how we decide to celebrate holidays and if people will change, not just travel plans, which is obviously already happening, but... Uh, just how they live their lives in public. And that's, I think, the, the real pernicious long-term thing. Yeah. About this. I mean, I think the other thing that's really notable is sort of the um, the collective rage in France that has really turned against the government. Um, that you know they've seen you know this is what the fifth, sixth uh, sort of uh, terrorist attack in France over the last year. Um, you know that really um, the populace has reached kind of a tipping point of <clears throat> whatever you're doing is not working. Yeah. Um, and that is unacceptable. And whether or not that results in uh, in a change of government, or whether or not it results in, um, you know, sort of the pendulum swinging into um, really extreme counterterrorism authorities and measures, um, you know, potentially those that might start to cause civil liberties uh, sort of concerns, what that might manifest. Um, I, I think that it, it does seem as though this particular attack has kind of uh, it's it's moved the population pretty quickly from um, the moment of of. Uh, you know, internal unification, you know, mm -hmm. we're one France, we're all in this together, to, to, to moving very quickly to a sense of who needs to be held accountable for this. I think that's right. And I guess one question I have about, um, about French policy in particular is whether that, whether that shift in public sentiment will drive finally a shift in resources um, that a lot of terrorism analysts have been saying that the French need to make. Uh, to deal with the scope of their threat. And, you know, the political will hasn't been there to shift budgets and hire more people um, and create the kind of CT infrastructure domestically that uh, that apparently they need. So is that going to change now? Or rather, is it going to go in the direction, Ryan, that you were suggesting, where people are just going to demand that the government try and harden all of the billions of soft targets that our societies have, and it's going to end up changing our way of life without necessarily addressing the threat in a direct manner. Yeah, the, the French problem is not, emphatically not, a problem of legal authorities. Uh, the French have incredibly robust general criminal investigative authorities and, uh, you know, amazing powers that would sort of chill your bo you to the bone in the counterterrorism space. So why aren't they using them? Uh, they do use them. I mean, they can they can lock people up in investigative detention over very long periods of time. They're, they're you know, French... and they just extended the state of emergency right. for another three months. So is it just not working? No, no. I mean, so for, you know, the problem on the French side is not a problem of legal authorities. It's uh, to to some extent a problem of resources, as Tamara describes. It's also a problem of just the scope and scale of the country's failure to integrate a large minority of uh, you know uh, you know that is in fact a you know a very quite reasonably in some respects disaffected underclass and and you know if you have twenty to twenty five percent of your population uh, living in 
uh, what they call suburbs and what we would call inner city slums, except right. that they're not in the, the, the inner cities, they're in the outer cities. I think the French word's interchangeable. Um, you know, uh, and, you know, ICE, that, that's a group of people that ISIS is going to be able to speak to. And some of them, you know, are people that ISIS will speak to, you know, when the, you know, when they have mental problems. Um, so I, I, I think, you know, there's a temptation to look at this and say, ah, what we need is, you know, Marine Le Pen or something and really robust counterterrorism authorities. Actually, France has already got those. I just want to push back a bit on the integration issue. You know, polling consistently shows that French Muslims are actually just as integrated uh, in terms of how they view themselves and their identity as American Muslims. Uh, the poverty issue is an issue, but I don't think that's necessarily a terrorism or Islam-related issue because there's also people in those suburbs, in those poor suburbs that are not Muslim, uh, lots of them, that aren't launching terrorist attacks. But so, don't, I'm... Do you think that sort of uh, speaks to the question of how easy it is uh, for someone to sort of identify themselves as ISIS, right? Because there is other forms of violence that also come from those communities, and there's been histories of riots and, and other sort of things um, that are not Muslim in, in identity, but sort of of this kind of broader class issue. Do you think the only difference between that and this is these people are saying they're ISIS, or do you think this is actually a different kind of threat that, that's emerging from some smaller sub? Population. I mean, the, the, the long, the short answer is I don't really know. And I, you know, I say as someone that used to study radicalization for a living, and it's, there's just no, there's no simple formula where you can just explain and be like, well, it's obviously this and that. It's this sort of toxic mix of lots of things, and we're still finding out things about this guy's life and uh, what connection he may or may not have had to radical groups. But the, the bigger problem with how you figure these questions out is terrorism is such a low probability event, and then we're tempted to make these sweeping generalizations off like, this one thing means for entire groups of people. And that's where I think we start getting into some trouble. So it's a long way of saying I don't have any real answers for you. <laughs> yeah, that's when we start getting into presidential campaigns. Um, okay, let's talk Turkey. Oh, oh she's been waiting to go there. I'm trying to do it. It's moderator's privilege. Um, yeah, so on top of everything else last week, uh, Friday afternoon we saw news coming out of Turkey that there was... Uh, a, a coup that appears to have been elements of the military, not the entire military. Um, I think I saw uh, somebody wrote a piece of reform policy. I forget who it was now. said, rule number one of a coup is make sure you either kill or capture the head of government. Um, rule number two, make sure the entire military is with you so that they can't <laughs> launch fighter jets and roll tanks against uh, against the pushists. Coups have a ton of rules. Who knew? Yeah, it's yeah. so many rules with these coups. Um, takes all the fun out of it. Yeah. Shout, shout out to uh, uh, Tamara and my old friend Nani Hall Singh uh, t- uh, today, who uh, actually has a uh, book on the strategic logic of coups. Oh. Um, that is amazing timing. That's well, great this timing. is his week. Yeah, the, he's yeah, a coup expert. Every, everybody gets everybody gets <laughs> everybody gets his fifteen minutes, and this is Nani Hall's. So, Excellent. so buy the strategic logic of coups. <laughs> um, so, Ryan, so explain. I mean, I want both, Ryan and tomorrow both of you to talk about this, but let's start with just explaining what the hell, like, what were what were the the, the ingredients that that lit this off? Because, I mean, I think that. You know, for a lot of people who are watching this, obviously, in the West, this, I mean, anytime there is a coup in a country of that size and that influence, it is, it is striking. It's terribly alarming. It looks very chaotic. But as we kind of, as time went on, it seemed like that there were maybe some fairly straightforward, not maybe straightforward, but there were explanations for what was happening here. But, you know, sort of talk us through, you know, 
how this came to pass. So I hate to give a similar answer to my last one, but we still don't know a lot. Mm -hmm. um, what we do know is Turkey's had a lot of military coups. They had one in 1960, another in 1971, another in 1980, and kind of one in 1997. Um, the difference between this attempt and all the uh, successful ones, except for the first one, 1960, is the highest command of the military supported all of these things and orchestrated them. 1960 was the exception, but within days of it happening, they quickly took control of the situation. Um, the other exception is, is uh, the other difference is, is uh, usually the people were pretty cowed by the military's displays of force or threat of displays of force and did not go out into the streets to try to oppose it. So this one was sort of different. We don't really know who was organizing it. We do know that a lot of higher level people were involved. The sort of depictions of this is a sort of bumbling colonel's coup. Uh, that have come out in the first few days isn't really that accurate. I think they came, and Aaron Stein's going to have a piece with Warren the Rocks that um, will be coming out. They came a lot closer than I think people than people mm. than people knew. Um, the 1980 coup in Turkey was sort of like the champagne of coups. It was perfect. It was had a lot of negative effects. So I'm not trying to make light of it, but it was perfectly organized. Turks woke up on September 12, 1980, to the voice of the ch chief of the general staff saying that they were in charge now and giving a long explanation as to why, and pretty much no one resisted them. This was pretty much as far as you can get from that attempt, and it was total chaos. So are we, uh, so, so if we're grading coups, and this is somewhat better than the bumbling colonel's coup, but really far from the sort of A-plus 1960 coup. So this is like um, a B-minus coup, like it's... It's it's not Talk a about C. a curve. It didn't even work, and you get a B minus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think like I think, a pass fail <laughs> class. I think. <laughs> like, what yeah. I want to take Tammy's classes now. <laughs> I Look, just, I th I think I, well, and, you were there for the champagne coup. So. Yeah, I, I actually wasn't, but um, oh, okay. but I I think this is also a really and people have been making a lot of comparisons, good and bad, to the coup in Egypt. Uh, th almost exactly three years ago. But I think that one thing that's notable here is that most military coups come with a degree of popular backing. They come in the context of public grievance, protests, demonstrations. You didn't have that in this case. And indeed, when Erdogan, ironically using FaceTime after having uh, blocked so you know, a lot of social media in the country for a long time, yeah. but when he called his supporters out into the streets... Um, they came, right. number one. And number two, all the opposition parties opposed the coup, even though they all can't stand Erdogan and think he's taking the country down a dark road. And to me, I think this is a mark of what's changed in Turkey. Uh, Stephen Cook uh, wrote about this in a great piece for the Washington Post over the weekend. But, you know, the military used to have this uh, enshrined role in Turkish politics as sort of a guardian of the Constitution and of Turkey's, um, at that point, quasi-democracy, uh, that was removed. And, uh, and, and across the spectrum, I think, Turkish politicians and large segments of the Turkish public, it seems, over the last few days, are demonstrating that they would rather have a flawed democracy with an elected leader who might have authoritarian tendencies than they would like to have a military takeover and a reset, which is what's happened in Turkish politics before. Now, you know, I'd love to take this as some kind of hope, hopeful sign about the evolution of democratic culture in Turkey. I'm not sure I can. I think it's more an indicator of the fact that politicians and the public understand that Erdogan has a really significant base in Turkish society, 
uh, that he's won, um, he, he hasn't just won pluralities, he's won majorities. And, uh, and so opposing him, if you're a mem- you know, a head of an opposition party, opposing him is a fool's errand at this point. It's, it's not going to get you into power yourself. The, the Turkish opposition hasn't demonstrated its own ability to constrain Erdogan. And so, you know, maybe it would be foolish for them to leave it in the hands of the military and think that they're going to be the beneficiaries. I don't know. What do you think, Ryan? I mean, I think you're, you're, you said a lot of smart things. The, um, the problem is, is I think a lot of these opposition parties are going to regret um, condemning the coup because he's basically, Erdogan is conducting a sort of massive purge. The day after the coup, you saw thousands of military officers arrested, thousands of judges arrested. Uh, today, he announced that he wants all the deans of every Turkish university to um, to resign. So these aren't lists that you just prepare after it happened. These are lists of people they already had. And so... Uh, he's blaming it on the Gulenist movement. I don't. We don't need to get into that. It's complicated. But... Actually, let's get into that. But finish your thought first. So, so he he's getting rid of all the people he doesn't like from Turkish society. And the sad thing is, is as soon as the tanks started rolling towards Istanbul's bridges, the outcome was predetermined. Whether or not the the coup the coupists the pushes I don't even want to say that word pushists were one or the government one. Uh, there was going to be a massive transformation of Turkish society conducted by whoever won at that yeah. point, which does make it similar to the aftermath of the 1980 Turkish coup, when the military won, fired teachers and judges, banned politicians from public office. And Erdogan is actually following, ironically, for someone who condemns the 1980 coup so much, a very similar script. So, so you're I, saying that Turkey is just that polarized, and that's that's what we should be seeing here, is that this wasn't a moment of unity in, you know, in opposing military intervention, this is a moment of deep polarization. It was both. Uh, there, it was a moment of unity in that Turkish society in general is really scarred by its experiences with coups. Uh, and so they have this revulsion towards that. Um, and, but at the same time, Turkish society is deeply polarized. And he only barely, Erdogan only barely, well, the AKP. So as president, he's not supposed to be in charge of political party anymore, but everyone knows he still is. Um, barely won the last election after calling another, because the first one he lost. He didn't lose. He didn't win the majority that he wanted. Then he had to call another one. So Turkish society is actually incredibly polarized. And I think that just because people came out against the coup doesn't mean that they like like Erdogan. And I think they're not going to like what he does over the next few days, weeks, and months. So I want to talk about the Gulenist movement because I think this is a potential real irritant now in U.S.-Turkish relations. Uh, Tamara and I were in rural Pennsylvania this weekend, nobody accused us of fomenting the coup in Turkey. And Not I actually, to your faces. I, yeah. I actually take that a little personally. Once I found out you were there, I actually did condemn you. <laughs> <laughs> we were all um, talking about it. So, here, so here's my question. Uh, is this simple paranoia uh, on Erdogan's part, uh, you know, a la Stalin finding Trotskyists everywhere uh, after Trotsky's exile? Uh, or is... It, they're a remote, remotely plausible idea that this uh, uh, exiled cleric in, in Pennsylvania uh, is uh, actually the sort of hidden hand behind this coup. What I what I said in a podcast we recorded yesterday is the funny thing about Gulen is if you read the right wing press about him in this country, he's called this dark Islamist. If you read the nationalist press in Turkey. He's called a Zionist homosexual. So, like, <laughs> you have these dramatically different depictions. Wow. He's really, he's really sort of, of this guy. you see whatever villain you want when you see Glenn. So, he's not, 
he's not this world mastermind plotting global takeover of Turkey or anywhere else. He's also not uh, just a kindly old man. He has an activist movement that is concerned with a lot of education, social justice issues, genuine outreach to other faiths. Um, but there's also a bit of a darker side of the movement. They did infiltrate the judiciary and the police forces, and they went after Erdogan's inner circle with con corruption investigations, probably legitimate corruption investigations that even got touched on Erdogan's son. Um, and so that was like the final break between these two movements. But they used to be thick as thieves. Erdogan started the AKP with the help of the Gulen network. Gulenists have been, were up until three years ago, were huge supporters of the AKP in terms of providing voters and cadres in the government in putting the military back in a box, all the, the sledgehammer trials and the other trials that put 15% of Turkish general and flag officers in prison earlier in the AKP's rule were all orchestrated and handled and outsourced to the Gulenist movement. So they had a falling out. Uh, do I think that they were behind the coup? I think they might have been, some of them might have been involved in it, but I, we just don't know. I think a lot of this stuff is, every everything bad that happens in Turkey now, you blame, blame on the Gulenists, and mm. it's just a little ridiculous. So. I have a question for Ben on this, though. So... If I am neither an Islamist, uh, nor... a dark radical, nor a Zionist homosexual. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for, for clarifying. And oh, that was my question. More the pity. Second question. Um, so is the difference, I, I've seen this kind of thrown out by some um, uh, individuals in the United States who, who uh, are using it to sort of uh, criticize the, the Obama administration or some of <clears throat> the Clinton doctrine. Um, if uh, Erdogan is correct, and Gulen is actually an individual in Pennsylvania who is a, a threat to his democratically elected govern, uh, government, um, that is uh, who has some sort of uh, has incited demonstrable violence uh, in his country, uh, and the United States declines to uh, either uh, prosecute him or hand him over to Turkish authorities, um, are the Turks entitled to under under sort of using the same intellectual uh, sure. rules, are they allowed to drone him in Pennsylvania? Yeah, or okay. render him. And okay. also, how does the extradition law work in this kind of case? Right, so let's let's start with extradition law, which is a uh, pretty simple due process backwater, actually. Um, basically, the standard for extradition is probable cause of a crime that has some analog in the U.S. judicial system. So, uh, if if uh, you know, if a country that we have an extradition treaty with, as I believe we do with Turkey, um, has a reasonable basis to bring this person to trial, they can ask the State Department uh, through the Justice Department to seek that person's extradition to face trial. The standards by which you get extradited are remarkably low because they're, it's not considered a conviction. It's, cons you know, it's a it's a, is there enough evidence for the person to face trial? Um, so I, I would think, um, that, you know, if Turkey has, now I think it's really interesting. They've been seeking his extradition for a long time without ever formally requesting it. And that, he's here, he was granted asylum, isn't that right? Well, he has a green card as an asylee. So does that raise the bar? Uh, mm. so you can even extradite citizens. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, now, what you can't do if somebody is an asylee and the nature of the charge is purely poli is, is political, right, we will generally not extradite somebody to face what we consider a charge that is a form of political repression. But the general standards are pretty low, 
And I actually suspect that the fact that there has never been an extradition request for him reflects the fact that the Turkish government doesn't have anything, it doesn't have a lot of evidence that would stand up in U.S. court that this guy is anything other than a, uh, you know, an op a political opponent, uh, you know, to, um, to Turkish, uh, the current Turkish administration. Now, Susan's question is very provocative, um, and I think actually it's really interesting to break down uh, where, uh, where the analogy to U.S. drone policy would break down. And I think the only place it really breaks down uh, is if the U.S. Um, is that there's no analog either to the authorization for the use of military force in the Turkish Gulenist conflict, nor is there any international recognition at all of the, the armed conflict nature. In the U.S. case with al-Qaeda, that, that there, there is sort of international recognition that that conflict exists. It's a bit controversial. People don't accept the degree of the U.S. position of it. There's a general understanding that the U.S. is using military force against, against al-Qaeda. There isn't the similar kind of international conflict or non-international armed conflict element of the Gulenist, uh, you know, Turkish conflict. And so the idea that it's not a perfect analogy to say, well, we're, we, we have a military conflict against the Gulenists and you're, he's on your soil and you are unable or unwilling to do something about it. But that said, the, 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 the analogy is not preposterous either. Uh, and Look, the ultimate defense against Turkey using drones to kill uh, Gulen is uh, not a legal argument. It's U.S. air defenses and uh, U.S.-Turkish relations, right? It's Well, and can we just be realpolitik for a minute? I mean, I think going back to Ryan's point earlier, Gulen is a scapegoat. Um, whatever his real role in Turkish politics may be, he is also a very effective scapegoat for Erdogan and his allies. So this is more at this point, more rhetorical than real. Uh, and we don't have the evidence. But as a practical matter, um, Turkey is a NATO ally. That binds it not only to the United States, but to a set of other Western countries. It's still, uh, at least on paper, trying to get into the EU. That constrains its behavior. Its, mili <laughs> its military is engaged in fighting an insurgency in the southeast. That's a constraint. Um, and it's part of this anti-ISIS coalition, although in very, very complicated ways. That's a further constraint. So for all the Sturm und Drang about Gulen uh, in the Turkish government right now, they've got other fish to fry as a practical matter that I think is going to limit, you know, what beyond rhetoric they're willing to do about this. Yeah, but they're going to keep beating the drum real hard on it. The labor minister came out and said the other day that the U.S. was actually behind the coup plot. Their foreign minister said anyone that helps Gulen is an enemy of Turkey. Uh, so they, he is a scapegoat. But I do think this could become a real crisis in U.S.-Turkish relations. And then I think we have to ask ourselves, what does it look like if we do give them up? And I really don't, I really don't know the answer to that. What are the costs besides giving up someone that might not be responsible for what he's being accused of, which is obviously no small thing, but is it worse than the consequences of not giving them up? Honestly, I feel like the leverage here is almost all on the American side. Um, it, given the, the nature of the mill-mill relationship, um, given the fact that uh, it's 
it is American-led military operations in the north of Syria that are worrying the Turkish government in terms of its, um, because of cooperation with the Kurdish parties in northern Syria and their links to the PKK. Um, I, I don't want to, you know, it, it would surprise me greatly if the United States, for political reasons, would give up Gulen. I mean, there's a legal process, there will be a legal process, but I think it's far more likely that the U.S. would, you know, threaten to pick up its F-16s and go home. Okay, we'll find out. <clears throat> so, for the past 13 years, we've all been laboring in the dark, reaching out for these 28 pages that were redacted from the joint inquiry into the 9-11 attacks. They were released last week. And the most shocking revelation is that there were not 28 pages at all. There were 29 pages. You can count them for yourself. And now, the truth is on the 29th page? Yes, the 29th page reveals all. Now, but, but, yes. but, so, here, so, so here's the... I, I, have, I have several important questions. Okay. One is... I have many thoughts. Where, where did the number 28 originally come from? Can we go back and find out who... Like, who miscounted the I'm, pages? I'm, I'm, I'm Googling. I'm Googling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Google it now. I'm going to bet it was Bob Graham. Go on. <laughs> okay, so that's question number one. Question number two, journalistic ethics question. Every media outlet in the world, do they need to run a correction now on every single one of their stories that references the 28 pages? You know what I think this is kind of like, and I've actually, I actually, in my lead to the story that I wrote about this, said the 20, it said, 29 pages, and sort of just like wait until the fourth graph to sort of reveal what it was to like maybe let the reader think that I, you know, misstated it. I think this is sort of like D.B. Cooper, the famous hijacker, whose name was not, at least as law enforcement authorities knew it, D.B. Cooper. It was Dan Cooper, and someone in law enforcement misreported it to a reporter at the time that his name was D.B. Cooper, and they've gone on calling him D.B. Cooper for the past 40 or 50 years or whatever it is. I kind of think that the 28 pages are destined to this. The New York Times did a whole story on this, never once noting that there were 29 pages. Did they I think call it the 28 pages? They just pages? kept calling it the 28 pages, and I think they're just sort of destined to be known as the 28 pages. Yeah, I, it 29 is a prime number. It's very awkward. I, 20, 28 is just much better. Yeah, because it's, it's... It's four, a multiple it, of seven. It's four times seven, yeah, <laughs> and, that, and that's really important for the New York Times. <laughs> okay. Can we talk about what they said now? So, yeah, so let's talk about what was <laughs> so in the... Much well, in a way, it actually is, because you already know what they said. Right. I mean, I, I, was, I was really at a loss, I mean, to, to come up with much in the way of, of really new information that was in the document. I mean, I found myself actually... I mean, first off, we knew the names of the people who were in it, um, as identified as these Saudi individuals, some of whom had connections to the government, some of whom were government employees, who were in the United States and are suspected uh, of potentially having been fixers uh, or helpers for uh, at least two of the hijackers that were in the United States. And Bob Graham has been pointing this out again and again for 13 years. Bob Graham, of course, who helped lead the commission that wrote these 28, 29, God, you know I'm doing it, pages and I've been pushing for the release. Bob Graham, who had been among other people who had been leaking out the contents of this and had really made it seem like what you were going to find was significant evidence of Saudi connections in the United States helping the hijackers in sort of a network. And I have to say, like, what you end up coming up with is, A, a bunch of stuff we'd heard already, and B, uh, a few, you know, possible connections and leads. But really what this is is kind of 
as it has been described, is a summary of leads and raw case notes uh, uh, and sort of investigative musings of the FBI that the joint inquiry had come up with. And one of the things that I was struck with, and it was I was talking about this with a friend, one of the reasons why you might want to actually shield these 29 pages from public view is that they are full of wild and completely unfounded speculation about real people by name accused of potential complicity or conspiracy in the mass murder of 3,000 people. And it would be irresponsible bordering on, I would think, libelous to just release that and say, well, we don't know, but maybe these people helped kill 3,000 Americans. We should look into it. I mean... We would never do something like that. And in other uh, intelligence collection contexts, you actually have an affirmative obligation whenever a lead is, uh, right. whenever you, whenever the FBI investigates a lead and determines that there is no sort of cause, that there's no uh, legitimacy, there are obligations to purge and minimize that information. Right, which did not happen in this case, by the way. And like, I mean, putting aside from, you know, just, just take the devil's argument here for a second, the FBI, the CIA, the 9-11 Commission, the Saudi government, many, many sources say that they interviewed these people that are named in here, and there is no credible connection to the things that they are suspected of. So at some point, don't you say, I mean, what, now what happens to them? Now, granted, their names were already out there. But I'm just saying it's an interesting argument for why these pages were redacted in the first place and why the joint inquiry wanted to include like this really just wild speculation. They even say in it, this may turn out to be nothing. Why they would want to include that in a long, detailed report about the 9-11 attacks. I also think there's a, there's a very big difference between having your name out there in some generic sense and being fingered in a formal congressional investigation um, that is citing FBI documents and, you know, saying, you know, we don't think these were adequately investigated. Um, and I think, you know... Um, there may have been a lot of justification for doing that at the time because the joint inquiry's job, which, remember, the 9-11 Commission hadn't happened yet, and the joint inquiry's job was kind of to look at both the before and after and say, hey, what was done, what went wrong? Um, And that's what these pages are, sort of a suggestion to investigate. Exactly. So I think there's, you know, uh, there, there may be a very good case for, you know, for having written them. I think there's, I agree with you, there's a good case for having kept them under wraps for 13 years, yeah. and, and I'm not sure that, you know, publicizing it now is such, is the greatest idea in the world. I don't know, I think there, there are, there's a lot of smoke in these documents. There, it's not like, I don't, I'm, I wouldn't be, I'm not as dismissive as what's in the documents, but I think the bigger story is, and the, re, the real reason why it's such a story and an object of fascination, is that I think most Americans that follow foreign affairs understand that Saudi Arabia has basically been pissing on our leg for decades. Right, right. Uh, they have been funding on a mass scale a very hateful form of Islam. Uh, they have propagated it through funding mosques all over the world in countries that previously had very tolerant forms of Islam, like Indonesia, Bosnia, uh, the United States. Uh, they do it through arms, of quasi-government arms, like the Muslim World League and the International Islamic Relief Organization, uh, and a lot of those people are sort of quasi-government officials that float in and out of embassies all over the world. Uh, so whether or not Saudi officials or these quasi-officials had actual ties to the 9-11 hijackers, and if they did, whether they knew about the plot, I think it's still an open question. I do think it's plausible. But the bigger issue is our relationship with this country that does not have our best interest in mind 
uh, by any stretch of the imagination, and whether or not there's some sort of larger reassessment that needs to happen. But both major parties seem pretty sure that that reassessment does not need to happen for reasons that I don't fully understand. Yeah, look, I I think that that it is um, it is notable in these 29 pages and in other things that we've read, including some very good reporting recently in the New York Times, the the tools of government that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia uses to propagate um, Wahhabi versions of Islam abroad, and the ways in which it, it uses diplomatic status, the ways in which it um, uses government financing to support individuals, to support institutions in other countries, to propagate this ideology. But I, I would say that if the if you're stating um, that it should be a policy goal of the United States to stop the Saudi government from doing that, that's a fool's errand because it is so uh, integrated with the identity of the Saudi state. I don't think they ever would. Um, and so I think the question from a U.S. policy perspective is more about, is there a way to, number one, talk to the Saudis, which I think the U.S. government has done uh, repeatedly before and after 9-11 in Democratic and Republican administrations about the implications of this um, when they do it in Pakistan, when they do it in Europe, when they do it in the United States, uh, and the negative implications that has for them as well as for us, so to make a national interest argument. But then you also get into some very tricky territory, which is should the United States be trying to restrict the ways in which another government uses um, embassies and money to engage in our society? You know, and I think part of part of the question um, that's raised by these 29 pages, by some of the other uh, reporting around um, this Saudi role is, you know, whether we should be uh, restricting foreign government's engagement in our civil society in the way that they've been doing. Well, this has, you know, people can argue this has a harmful impact, but we do things according to our ideology that are analogous in other societies around the world, and we go ballistic when governments try to restrict it. So I think, and I'm not saying, you know, that it's an exact parallel. What I'm saying is that the United States is particularly handicapped in trying to make those kinds of arguments to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, given the position that we take on these issues around the world. I'm comfortable with the fact that hypocrisy is an uh, intrinsic part of being a person and a country, and I'm comfortable trying to get Saudi Arabia to stop doing stuff that we don't like them doing, even if we're doing things that other countries don't like, like democracy promotion, which I actually do think we should dial back a bit on that, but that's unrelated to this conversation. So I see what you're saying, but I think that's an argument that basically just perpetuates the status quo, which I think is um, toxic. A fair point. Let me just make one last observation. <clears throat> I said earlier that, you know, why you would put this out in public or put it together this way escapes me. I actually think there is an explanation in the pages, and this goes to something that I think we didn't really know about what was in those pages. Uh, a significant chunk of them, I'd say about a quarter, is devoted to the joint inquiry essentially second-guessing the Bush administration's view of Saudi Arabia as an ally. And it even refers to it and puts it in air quotes as if to be raising the eyebrow like, Ally. I don't think they're air quotes if they're on the page. <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, yeah, right. exactly. I'm doing air quotes. They're doing real quotes. And really, I mean, interview is saying we spoke to multiple intelligence and law enforcement officers who said the Saudis were no help cooperating with investigations. Uh, that said that they don't feel like they have their best interest in our best interest in mind. And in a sense, it was it's a very politically charged document that I think can be read 
and ought to be read as the joint inquiry trying to signal to the administration but also the public at the time, we do not believe that this government has our best interest at heart, and we also think that this administration is misguided in its attempts to, uh, and its belief that Saudi Arabia is an ally. I was really struck by that. It really just took a big swipe at the FBI, the CIA, pointing out that the CIA and the FBI, or the FBI didn't even really have uh, resources devoted to investigating Saudi links to terrorism, particularly in the United States, calling out Bob Mueller by name in that regard, in terms of testimony he gave, to almost trying, trying to embarrass him, it seems. So that may be one way to think about reading these documents is, not just as a, you know, we found potential leads and, 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 and links to the 9-11 attacks, but we are broadly questioning the U.S. alliance with Saudi Arabia. And that's maybe another reason why George W. Bush wanted to keep it quiet. <laughs> that, that may be. And I also think it raises an interesting question about how much has changed. Um, you know, one of the Saudi officials kind of fingered in these pages is Prince Nayef, who uh, was a senior prince and, and head of intelligence. He's since died. His son, Mohammed bin Nayef, is now the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and was for uh, the last couple of decades the intelligence chief and apparently a very close partner of the United States since the 9-11 attacks. And so I guess one question I have that I can't answer, but I'd love to hear from folks in the IC about, is to what extent have this, did, did the Saudi government and the U.S. government um, take that signal that you're describing, Shane, and work to close the gaps, yeah. and how much have we actually accomplished, and how much of this is still a problem? Yeah. It's complex stuff. Now we know why they needed the extra page. Yes, <laughs> but why did they bury that extra page and not tell us the about real it? Question. It's real it's government mm -hmm. secrecy run amok. The truth run is out there, you guys. Uh, all right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, I will go first, actually. My object lessons this week is the Emmy nominations which have finally, the Television Academy has finally corrected a grave injustice and nominated the FX series, The Americans, for best, best show, best drama. It actually picked up five uh, nominations. I bring this up not just because The Americans is one of the best shows on TV, but if you are listening to this podcast and you are not watching The Americans... Like, what are you doing? I've yeah, never, what is wrong I've, with you? I've never watched what? The Americans. Oh, it's so Who good. Who are you? I, I, How I'm, have you not watched this show? I'm not even sure I've ever heard of it. Oh, for God's what? sake. Ben, but this was that... really an object aimed at converting you. Is it? So, so wait, oh. is The Americans the one like that's loosely based on those Russian spies? Yeah, but yes. it's set okay. in the 80s. So it's like... The and the it's very good. It's, oh. The period stuff in the series is so great, it actually makes me cringe sometimes yeah. to remember what the 80s were like. Yeah, well, and like what we the wore last, and how we <laughs> behaved. The and... last time Shane made me watch a piece of television, it was London Spy, which was... And you didn't regret it, which right? Which was so excellent yeah. that I will take this recommendation... Uh, at face value. And you've got and four seasons of this now, man. People who work on Russia issues within the FBI and IC were consulted on this show and, and are, um, are very enthusiastic about the realism, um, and also some of the more sort of, um, you know, the, the Russians are, are very old school in a lot of tradecraft. They do the, the dead doubles and, you know, I mean, these really sort of complex, elaborate things. And so, uh, the stamp of authenticity yeah. from experts, I, I've been told that it really is pretty good. It's great. It's finally getting its due. Much um, higher. Body I hope it count, cleans though, up. Than real life. 
What's that? Much higher body count. Oh, yeah, life. yeah. I mean, some of it's fantastic, but it's a tough. I feel like Rational show. Security should get a shout out on the Americans. Exactly. I yes. do too. Everybody they we mention, you mention us. Not to mention. How are they going to do this? Not to mention. haven't been invented yet. Not to, me- not to mention from Harry's Time Razors. Time Machine. <laughs> Harry's Razors. We got a tweet. Did you see? Yeah, Harry's Razors tweeted at oh, us. Yeah. Um, All right. Yeah, Sponsorship opportunities still available. Yeah. <laughs> Harry's razors. Memo, memo to Harry's razors. Uh, uh, we're open for business. <laughs> I mean, we have no shame. <laughs> Even Ryan, I bet, I bet Ryan will shave if Harry's razors. Oh, don't, I, I, I'm don't volunteering do that Ryan for that. No, there's no, <laughs> there's no way that's happening. You don't have enough money to make that happen. Neither does Harry's razors. Um, Ryan, you have some objects to share, yeah? Yeah, so I had a few options. I, I was really a little worried about this. It's like, I have to come up with something really good and um, something original and profound and insightful. And have instead, I just, I just <laughs> came up with Warren the Rocks Ooh, uh, coffee mugs. More swag. Yeah. them together by the mic. Nice. Uh, for all the... Um, oh, I could have been having my coffee in this all along. They Thanks, do not Ryan. recommend putting these in a dishwasher. I'm just putting, pointing that out. I oh, okay. like the rifle and the scotch glass logo. I Thank love you. that. That's, That's great. That's Thank great. you. I'm honored. So yeah, I'm honored to be on this podcast. I listen to it. It's what I do on Saturday when I'm tired of editing. Is I I download this podcast. And nice. Oh, we're so, so glad. We're like your brain vacation. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> well, it's uh, it's nice. It's relaxing. It's funny. And yeah. I just want to listen to utter nonsense. Like right. Plug it Not in. too demanding. <laughs> These people don't know what they're talking about. But they sure sound but certain. But they're adorable. <laughs> <laughs> you're just darling. Uh, well, Ryan, thanks for coming on the show. And that brings us to the end of the show. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. Uh, you can find our show archive at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And whenever you download the podcast, please download the podcast. Please leave a review and a rating. Uh, next week, I'm going to read some reviews. So another week to post some reviews. And maybe next week we should do some uh, live audience questions again. Yeah, yeah. Tweet us at RATL Security. We had fun doing that last time. Uh, so we will definitely take more of your questions uh, next week. Uh, the show is produced and edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed by Fatula Gulen and the Champagne Coops. Ooh. Ooh. Nice. All right. You like that? Good, yeah. good, good, good. Coops, good. glassware, yeah. it's all coming together. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was sure the band was going to be the 28 pages. That's nah, <laughs> too easy. I'm not done with my turkey my turkey buns yet. Um, no, of course, our uh, music is performed by Sophia Yan. As far as I know, not involved or responsible for the coup in Turkey. Not as far as we know, but there Has might be a page out. missing. Yeah, there might be a page missing. <laughs> It's 30 pages. It's, it's actually 30 with the cover page. Right. Just to be clear about this. That's the story you need to write. That's the story. It's still, there's still more truth to it. Uh, on behalf of my friends, Ben Buddhist, Mark Hoffman Buddhist, and Susan Hennessy, and our special guest, Ryan Evans, I'm Shane Harris. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.